All right, guys. Well, uh, we're going to jump into our sermon this morning. So I'm going to invite you guys to find your way to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 41 through 52 uh, this morning. And as you guys are finding your way there, uh, I kind of want to feel something out with you guys. I know we've got a few collectors in our church. Uh, We had one of our big collectors that I know of uh, last night that was here, but uh, if, if any of you guys are, are collectors, that you uh, gather something. Sometimes uh, people collect things that we would consider really normal, and sometimes people collect things that uh, some of us would consider really strange, but a lot of the time when you're collecting something, one of the most important elements of your collection is, well, how rare is this piece, or, or how rare is that piece, and so uh, if there's a thousand of something, well, that's pretty rare. If Out of all the people in the world, if, if billions of people live on planet Earth and only a thousand people own this item, that's kind of special. If there's only a hundred, that's even more special. If there's just one in existence, one in the world, uh, that makes those items, a lot of the time, they're, they're priceless. They're things that, that people would never consider selling or, or trading because that's the only item in the world's existence. Well, This week's passage that we're going to look at kind of has that same feel because uh, we have a couple of different stories that talk about Jesus as a baby, the Christmas story, and and kind of some pieces and elements of that. But uh, from when Jesus is one until when Jesus is 30, we don't have a whole lot of verses. These verses that we're going to look at today really are all that we know of that 29 years of Jesus's life. So Uh, The rest of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to pick up when Jesus is 30 and and go through the end of his life, Uh, but it's just a few years. Uh, What we have this morning that we're going to look at is is really uh, the majority of Jesus' life we're going to look at in just a few verses. So uh, I'm going to invite you guys to follow along. I want to read the story uh, with you guys, and as we start, as we read the story, uh, I want to just warn everyone and, and anyone that's out there either uh, on the internet at home or in the cafe, families that are, are out there, uh, this is for everybody. Our story this week that we're going to look at, it has something for everybody, whether you are a child, whether you are a teenager, whether you're a parent, whether you uh, are none of those things uh, but are just here to hear from God. It's got something for all of us. So if you're out there and, and mom and dad, you're listening on the couch, yell at your teenager and tell them to come join us because uh, this one's for them too. So uh, with that said, let's read our story. We're going to read all the way through verses 41 through 52. And then we're going to come back and dig into it a little bit. So let's start uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to to Jerusalem looking for him. Then, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. 
And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Church, would you guys pray with me before we continue on? God, we are so thankful for uh, God, for your holy, uh, precious, perfect, uh, without error uh, word. And God, as we study, as we hear from you this morning, God, we pray that, that we would do just that. God, that we would hear from you. God, that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us today. God, that you would give us a heart that is soft and prepared to receive what you have to say to us today. That we wouldn't just hear it and allow it to rattle around in our heads for a few minutes and then fly out the other ear and be gone forever. God, help us to, to hear from you and God to, God to put it into practice. God, to, to allow it to take root in our heart, to take root in our lives so that, God, that we might be uh, people who don't just hear the word, but, God, that we do it as well. So, God, we pray that you would speak uh, during the next few minutes, and we give this time to you. That's in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, as we settle in, uh, we're going to look at this story, and we're going to talk our way through this story. So, as we get started, I think it's important for us Americans that, that don't have a little bit of this context to understand that uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, in Jesus' Bible that they had at this point in time, in three separate places it calls for mandatory attendance for all males age 13 and above to attend three feasts that God had set up. Every year uh, they, the, the men were all commanded to attend the Feast of the Passover the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And we see that in a couple of different places in Exodus uh, in both chapter 23 and 34 and then again in Deuteronomy 16. So uh, most families, though, that, that lived as far away from Jerusalem as Jesus' family did, all the way up in Nazareth, uh, they would probably, the, the family would only go and attend maybe one feast a year. Uh, maybe they wouldn't take the kids or, or maybe uh, the wife wasn't required to go, so she wouldn't go uh, as frequently as the men were required to go. So the men were required to attend, but uh, the women and children were not. So uh, while we know uh, of just a few things about Jesus' family life, one of the things that we see that's, that's pointed out here is it says that uh, they made this trip as they did every year. We see here a, a great sense of uh, piety, a, a religious commitment from Mary and Joseph and uh, from their family as uh, they were going above and beyond what was required of them. Joseph would have been required to attend as the man of the house, but, but the fact that Mary went with him and they were taking Jesus with them as well uh, shows us that they were committed to God and committed to their faith. So this trip from Nazareth uh, to Jerusalem, it probably would have taken normally about three days uh, for them to travel, in. and it wasn't necessarily a safe trip. There were parts of the road that were unsafe for them to walk on, or there were bandits on the road or different things, so people would travel in caravans. They would travel in a big group, which uh, is going to help us make a little bit more sense of how Jesus got left behind here in a few minutes, but uh, Jesus's devout family, they, they go to Jerusalem. Uh, based on the way it says that the days were completed, we know that they spent an entire week in Jerusalem celebrating this feast and Frederick Godet, a, a scholar, suggests that Jesus must have been uh, in what he describes as holy delight during those seven days. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, is, is starting to become old enough that, that he's starting to put some of the pieces together, some of the, the, the sacrifices that God had put together in the Old Testament and, and required of his people, some of the, the scriptures that they would read, that they would uh, come in, and it was just tradition. We, we read this, and then we read this. And, uh, Jesus was starting to put some of those puzzle pieces together. He was, 
he was growing older and, and starting to really understand and uh, is, is starting to, to, to make sense of all of this. So every rite, every spiritual practice, it just it spoke volumes to his soul. I'm sure he was connecting things and, and putting pieces together. And his heavenly father uh, was revealing to him as he was growing up more and more of, of who he was. Uh, some kids, they go to Disneyland to get that magical experience. That's a perfect Southern California analogy, right? We've got Disneyland right around the corner. And so when kids go to Disneyland, it's the first time I, I would imagine we, we were actually planning on taking our kids for the first time a, a few months ago during that winter. It's not going to be quite as crazy season. And then the world shut down. So we haven't gotten to take our kids to Disneyland yet. But I imagine that, that when you take your kids to Disneyland for the first time, it's like they've got those really big eyes and, and the things that they've been seeing on cartoons, that they're, they're real. They're, they're in real life. And so there's this joy, this excitement of, Mom, we got to go see this. Mom, we got to go do that. Mom, we got... I imagine that Jesus, that, that week that he spent in Jerusalem, this may have been the first time that he got to celebrate this feast. We, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But I imagine that he's kind of putting all those pieces together. He's kind of having a, a kid at Disneyland kind of a week as he's experiencing this feast that his family has taken him to. So after they've been there in town for a week and, and done all of the, the, the rites and the sacrifices and the, the things that they were supposed to do, they were commanded by God, they begin the trip home. And as they begin their trip home, their caravan is getting ready to leave town. And so uh, we don't know all of the details, but I, I imagine that uh, if they're anything like my family, uh, either my family that I'm father in now or my family growing up when I was a kid, you kind of just, all right, you've got the kids, off they go, and, and we've got a bunch of kids. We've got four kids. I, I grew up in a family with three kids. Like, sometimes you, you just say, all right, you guys are with mom, off you go, and, and dad would do his own thing. Or uh, I have to tell my kids now, all right, you're, you're off with mom, and off they go, and, and I'm kind of doing my own thing. So I imagine that that's probably something along the lines of the assumption that Mary and Joseph had. Oh, Jesus is with dad, I, I don't have to worry about it. Or, or Jesus is with his mom, or Jesus is with his friends, or what? I'm, I'm sure he's in the caravan. And so off they go, and a day later, they, hey, Jesus, Je Jesus. Joseph, have you seen Jesus? No, I, I thought he was with you. Well, no, he's not with me. And they start to put all the pieces together. Jesus is missing. Jesus didn't make it into the caravan. So they start looking around for him with family and friends. And uh, their, uh, their anxiety, I'm sure, starts to build, right? They, they realize that he's not there with them. And so they've traveled a day away from Jerusalem heading towards home, and they find out that Jesus isn't with them, so they have to turn around and spend a day traveling back to Jerusalem to look for Jesus. And it tells us that they found him in three days, so it means that uh, they, they had to spend another day searching for Jesus in Jerusalem. Those three days, I, I'm sure Mary and Joseph's hearts were just ready to explode. We, guys, we, you, you remember how that angel came to us and said, like, this baby's a big deal, right? We lost the Messiah. We lost the one. Last week we talked about this baby is going to save us all, and we left him at Walmart. Whoops. So we've got this moment that Mary and Joseph, I'm sure, are just, I can't even imagine all of the things that are going through their heads. And at this point, we see kind of a point that I think is really important for us as we dig into this a little bit more that I want us to make sure that we grasp and really understand today. So 
When we accept the incarnation, the fact that, that, that holy, perfect God, that, that Jesus that was living forever in heaven, he is an eternal being and has always been, puts on flesh and, and becomes a human and is born as a baby, what that means is that we have to accept that, that while Jesus was fully God, his essence never changed, he, he never stopped being God, when he put on humanity, when, when he became fully man as well, as Scripture tells us, that means that we have to accept that in this story, he's genuinely a 12-year-old boy. Though he was fully God, he was also, also fully human, and that means that he chose not to avail himself to the, the, the rights of his deity that, that were still his. He was still fully God, but, but he chose not to practice those things. And so as we look at this story, we have to remember that Jesus, being fully man, he, he still had to learn. He still had to grow. He, he still had to learn that two plus two equals four. He still had to learn uh, some of these other things that, that are important for all of us to learn. And so we understand that when we think about God, we understand that God, one of the things that we know about God is that he is everywhere. The, the big theological term for that is that he's omnipresent, that God can be meeting here with us right now, but, but also at a church in Australia and also at a church in England and also at a church in China or in, in different places around the world. God is everywhere. But when Jesus became a human, Jesus wasn't everywhere, right? That would have solved this whole problem if Jesus was at the temple in Jerusalem and with mom and dad in the caravan. That would have uh, been convenient. But uh, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't omnipresent when he was a human. He was in one spot at one time. So in the same way, uh, Jesus was also not omnipresent, which is the big uh, theological term for the fact that we know that God knows everything. God knows everything, and, and Jesus, uh, before the history of the world, did know everything. But when Jesus became a human, that part of him, he, he chose not to practice that, not to exhibit that. So uh, Jesus is a growing boy. Jesus is a 12-year-old. And maybe uh, if you've ever been a 12-year-old or, or can think back to that or have a 12-year-old or have spent time around a 12-year-old, you'll realize that their social awareness is not quite the social awareness that, that maybe you and I have. So uh, as we're imagining Jesus having this week at Disneyland kind of a, an experience where he's understanding everything and things are starting to make sense to him, he is just so locked in on what he's realizing, the way that God is just showing thing after thing after thing to him, he doesn't realize that mom and dad are gone. He was perfectly capable of unknowingly causing this distress for his parents, that, that he was, we believe, and it's really important for us to believe that he was a sinless being, that he never willfully did something that, that would have caused pain or caused harm, or if he had said, yeah, I know. My, Mary and Joseph, you guys go do your thing. I'm going to hide, and then I'm going to stay behind because I want to stay at the, the tabernacle. I want to I stay at the temple. If he had done that, well, then that's, that's disobedience, right? That's, that's a problem. That's a sinful response. And, and we see here a little bit later that Mary's response to Jesus when she finds him, she, she kind of assumes that it was a sinful response, that he chose to stay behind. But if we believe and know based on everything that the entirety of Scripture uh, it is possible in this passage for Jesus as a sinless being to also uh, unwillingly do something that would cause this distress to his parents. Jesus unknowingly brought that anxiety upon Joseph and Mary. 
So let's look at the next scene now. The, the first scene that we looked at was when they lost the Messiah. Uh, let's look now at, at verses 46 through 50 when they found the Messiah. Let's read those again so they're fresh in our minds. Starting in verse 46, he says, Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They lost Jesus. They did not stop looking for him for three days. They, they continued to search, continue to search, continue to search. We, we have to find our son. And I believe that what we see here from Mary and Joseph, I, I would make the argument it's good parenting. Because uh, I, I think some of us look at it and go, man, how could you lose your kid? How did you, uh, anybody that's, that's bold enough to say that doesn't, has never had a kid that's a runner. I've, I've got one of my four kids that, uh, man, he wants to take off and hide whenever he has an opportunity, and, and it's fun for him, and we have to, to keep an eye on him because he just wants to disappear and hide around a corner or, or sneak up on us or whatever, and uh, thank goodness, I, Carrie, my, my wife, is, is wonderful about keeping track of our kids because I'm kind of absent-minded enough I would totally be in the situation where Mary and Joseph are that, whoops, we lost a kid. Uh, as a child, I can tell you guys, uh, we, I, my, both of my parents were super involved in church, and so uh, growing up, maybe mom would have to be there early to sing, or, or dad would have to get there early to teach his Sunday school class or whatever, so we were always going in different cars, and uh, we'd have two cars there at the end of the day, and there was a time where I got left behind at church, where my brothers uh, were left behind at church, and you know, that's okay. We get to spend a little extra time with the janitor or the pastor or whoever was locking up, but uh, they'd get home and look at, you don't have Drew. I don't have Drew. Uh-oh. Um, but sometimes the way that, that good parenting shows itself is that sometimes good parenting is better seen in how we respond to our failures than how we respond in our successes. Everybody's going to make a mistake. Every parent, if you haven't made a mistake as a parent, it's just because you haven't been a parent yet. Because every one of us uh, makes mistakes, right? But how we respond in those mistakes, how we uh, acknowledge that we've failed or, or, or seek God's forgiveness or sometimes seek our children's forgiveness. Uh, parents, it's okay to, to tell your kids that you were wrong and, and ask them to forgive you as well. But uh, we see here, Mary and Joseph, they, they don't stop searching until they find their son. So by the time they find him, he's been missing for three days, and they, they come and they find Jesus among the teachers in the temple. He's sitting there uh, listening and, and asking questions and giving replies. There's, there's a dialogue where Jesus is, is sitting with the teachers in the temple, and it says that, uh, amazingly, he was asking insightful questions. He was understanding what was being discussed, and, and I'm sure it was blowing many of them away that, look, this, this 12-year-old boy is asking incredible questions. He's He's put together a lot more of this than, than most other kids his age would have. His answers were brilliant. They were literally, it says, they were amazed. They were, they were literally struck by his comprehension, by his understanding. But it's also important for us, as we talked about a minute ago, to, to remember to acknowledge the humanity of Jesus. Because, see, some people look at this and they go, well, I mean, come on. He was God. He knew everything. So obviously, like, he probably came into the temple and says, all right, all you teachers, everybody sit down. Jesus, I, 
I know I'm only 12, but like I'm God, so I can tell you guys, I'll give you all the answers to all the world's problems. That this story doesn't dictate that that's the way that, that this has to be understood. See, it, it may have been that Jesus was a genius. Maybe Jesus was uh, well beyond his age and, and well beyond where his understanding should have been, but it's not necessary for us to see uh, the way that this is written. It's not necessary for us to see Jesus as a genius. This 12-year-old, this perfect Messiah, he was sinless. He was intelligent, probably. He was, he was well-studied, for sure, because uh, these stories from the Old Testament, many of them probably resonated to him because he's like, well, I want to read about uh, the Messiah that's going to be born in Bethlehem because I was born in Bethlehem. I, I, I want to read the stories about how God has interacted with people in history because, man, that, I, I've got parents that that's really important to them, so maybe it should be really important to me. He had a profound understanding and certainly, certainly, certainly had a great relationship with God as he was growing up. So even though Jesus may not have been exercising omniscience, he wasn't using, he wasn't pulling his God card here and wasn't using the knowledge that as God was fully available to him because being fully man, he was still just a 12-year-old boy. But the depth of his participation in this conversation was astounding to both the teachers and to the people who were there with them. So now we see Mama. Mama shows up. Mama finally finds this 12-year-old that's been missing for three days. And Mary's words, your father and I have been searching for you. Literally, you, you translate that. She's saying, suffering pain, we have been looking for you. It has, it has caused us great emotional distress as we have hunted for you. What were you doing, kid? Like, that, that's more of the, the picture. Like, I, I see more of a whack on the back of the head. Come on, Jesus. What are you doing? We've been looking for you. How did you not know that we were looking for you? And we can, we can easily understand Mary's concern here, right? She's been frustrated. I'm sure there's been a whole lot of fear and a whole lot of concern, but there's also, boy, if that kid is okay, I am going to wear him out because he, how dare he do that to me? There, there's probably a little bit of frustration that's boiled up in uh, Mary and Joseph over the last three days. So when Mary finally sees him, uh, she says, what are you doing? How did you not realize we were gone? What what happened? She obviously considers him to have sinned as we uh, see her comment to him. But now let's look at Jesus's response. See, uh, Jesus didn't see it that way. Jesus didn't see it as uh, disobedience. And uh, the answer that he gives, uh, just a a fun little side note, these are actually the earliest recorded words of Jesus that we have recorded because baby Jesus didn't say anything in the Christmas story. So Jesus as a 12-year-old, these are the first recorded words of Jesus that we have. But as we look at them, as we might expect, as we see in so many other words of Jesus, these words have great theological importance. So his response to this question from his mom is actually in the form of a gentle question. He says, why were you searching for me? Verse 49, he says, didn't you know that I I had to be in my father's house? Why why did you spend a day looking around Jerusalem for me, mom? wouldn't you know that I, I had to be here in my father's house? Jesus calls the temple where he was standing his father's house. And in doing so, in making that statement, uh, maybe it doesn't jump out at us, but in making that statement that God is his father, he was asserting that, that God was his father, that he stood in a unique position, that he stood in unique relationship to God. 
See, Jesus understood that he had a unique relationship with God, that, that as he's saying this, that didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's saying, Mom, I understand. I, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm the, I'm the one that all these scriptures talk about. See, whether it was during this week that he was there having his Disneyland experience or whether it was something that he had been piecing together before that, at this point we see he already understands that unique relationship that he has with God, that unique connection. And for us to catch the idea of just how radical this was, see, you and I, we talk about God as Father all the time because it's familiar to us in the New Testament. We see it as uh, Jesus talks about God as Father uh, frequently, but for us to understand uh, really just how unique this was, uh, we need to understand that in the huge, huge library, in the, 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 the books and books and books of the Old Testament, Jesus' Bible that he had at that time, God is only referred to as Father 14 times in the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And even then, even in those 14 times, they're, they're rather impersonal. They're not something that, that Jesus would uh, have, have picked up on Abraham called Dad, Father, and you know, it wasn't something that was normal. Even in reference to those 14 times, those 14 times Father is always used in reference to the nation, that God is the Father of the nation, not personally saying that God is my Father. Even when it speaks of the one place that it gets a little bit more personal, it talks about God being Abraham's Father, but it talks about just the way I said it that God is Abraham's father. Abraham never referred to God as my father. So in all of these times, we see that, that, that this term father is something that's abnormal. So for Jesus to have picked up on this and, and kind of made this connection, it tells us that, that Jesus is saying, you, you know the thousands of years in the way that we've talked about God all the way up to this point? Yeah, I'm, I'm different than all of that. I, I have a different relationship with God than anyone in the history of the world has had. So when Jesus refers to God as Father and never used any other term for God, he always refers to God as his Father. We, we see that uh, 60 different times, uh, 60 or more potentially, uh, different times in the Gospels. In the four books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus, we see Jesus refer to God as Father, Father, Father. So when Jesus addresses Mary like this, when, when Jesus answers Mary and says, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? It's, it's setting off a, a warning siren for us. It, it, it's telling us, hey, there's something significant about this. Jesus is making that claim. I am the one that all these scriptures talk about. When Jesus addresses Mary like this, he's not being rude. He's not saying, yeah, I did what I wanted to. What, the way that he responds here, we know that he's not being rude or disobedient because we know that in just a couple of verses, we see in verse 51 that he humbly submits. He humbly goes home, and it says that he continued in submission to his parents. He's simply making it clear here in these verses to Mary and Joseph and, and really to us as well that, that 12-year-old Jesus, he, he's old enough that he doesn't just follow along and, and hold on to mom and dad's coattails anymore. He's seeking God for himself. He wants to understand God for himself. His relationship with God is not just mom and dad's anymore. It's his own. And that's something that uh, kids, teenagers, uh, grown-ups, we all have to understand. Our relationship with God is not just something that we get to hang on to the coattails of grandma and granddad. 
It's not just something that gets to be somebody else's that, that we just tag along. It, it has to be our own. And so Jesus is saying, Mom, Dad, I, this is my, I, I seek God on my own too. This is important to me, not just something that I wanted to tag along with you guys. Worship is not just for the adults. Uh, 12-year-olds can understand it too. 12-year-olds can have a relationship with God and understand who God is. So let's look finally at the third scene in this. We're going to look at verses 51 and 52. About, uh, talk about, they, they talk about when the Messiah grew up. So let's read those verses now. Verse 51, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. So all of, uh, of the grown-ups in here, you guys are invited to continue listening, but I want to address the teenagers that are in here. I want to address the families out in the cafe. Mom, Dad, uh, smack your kids and tell them to listen for just a minute. Stop coloring or whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, because th- this, this part specifically applies to our younger kids, our, our younger adults that we've got here. See, some of you guys have earthly parents that maybe they understand your relationship with God, maybe they don't. But that's, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't put barriers that are uh, something that you can't overcome in your relationship with God. See, Jesus had parents that didn't understand him sometime as well. Jesus' parents, they missed the boat sometimes. And uh, Jesus didn't let the fact that Mary and Joseph didn't understand everything of who he was, Jesus didn't let that keep him from both honoring his parents as well as honoring his heavenly father at the same time. See, being obedient to God and being obedient to our parents is not something that's in competition with one another. It's not something that, well, I'm going to ignore what mom and dad have to say because I serve God, not you. Don't ever, ever, ever make that argument. I'm doing what God wants me to do, not what you want me to do. Because when we do that, you know what that is? That, that, that puts scripture into a really awkward place because the Bible tells us that, that all authority comes from God. And you know what that means for you, young person? You know, kids, you know what that means for you? That means that God gave you your parents, that God didn't make a mistake by giving you those people in your life. Grown-ups, that, that applies for us too, right? We, we have bosses and uh, leaders and, that are in our life. Maybe they're not parents that we obey our, our mom and dad anymore, uh, but we still, we still have to obey the authorities that are put in our life. God wants us Uh, to submit to the people that are in authority in our life. And so Jesus was both honoring, thank you. (laughs) Jesus was both honoring God and honoring his parents in the way that he uh, responded to his obedience to, to mom and dad. Submitting to them was an act of submission to God. Let's look at verse 51 together. Verse 51, it says that he went down with them and, and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. Literally, he, as he was obeying them, it's a phrase that talks about continuous obedience. Jesus continued to obey. It shows us kind of a, a big-picture story of who Jesus was for the, the rest of his adolescence. He was an obedient child. He submitted to Mary and Joseph, but at the same time, we know that, that he was growing as well, that he was learning as well. As we see in verse 52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is a picture of perfect development, perfect uh, growth and maturing 
And the word that's translated favor there, in favor with God and men, is the Greek word charis. That word is, is the word that is translated grace most of the time, that he was growing in grace with God and growing in grace with other people. He was graced in his relationship with God. He was graced in his relationship with men. And, and it's because that obedient, submissive spirit that he had was key to understanding and experiencing proper spiritual growth. He was growing in his relationship with God. And when we are in proper relationship with God, when our, when our relationship with God is right, that vertical relationship is right, it, it impacts the way that we interact with other people as well. It changes the way that we respond to mom and dad, teenagers, kids. It changes the way that we respond in either choosing to be kind and to love other people or whether we respond in hatred and anger. I want to share with you guys a quote from Kent Hughes in his commentary that he's written on Luke. He says, when we submit our lives to God in scriptural terms, saying, here am I, send me, like Isaiah 6 says, or presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, as Romans chapter 12 says, God's favor rests upon us. Then our vertical obedience brings the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the impulse to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as Ephesians 5 talks about. This inevitably brings favor with our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, what he's saying is that relationship, that, that vertical relationship with God, if, if we get that right, it's connected to the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. If, if someone comes up to me and tells me, you know, I, I really love God, I just can't stand all the people around me. You know what that tells me? Maybe that relationship with God isn't quite right. You probably don't understand how much you've been forgiven because if, if, if we've been forgiven much by God, that, that makes us more willing to forgive other people. If we understand how much God has been kind to us and loved us, that, that makes it a little bit easier for us to be able to love other people as well. See, already in Jesus' life, early as just a 12-year-old, he values this pursuit of comprehending God, of, of understanding God, as it says that he increased in wisdom and in stature. His approach to knowing God, to, to seeking understanding, it, it should be an example for all of us as well. We see this in this week in, in Jesus as a 12-year-old. We saw it last week with Simeon and Anna. It talks about they were, they, they were much, much older than 12-year-old Jesus. Anna was somewhere between 80 and 100 and something years old. And they were still learning. They were still growing in their relationship with God. So if we've got the whole spectrum from 12-year-old that needs to learn and, and needs to grow in his relationship with God to a 100-year-old woman, potentially, that, that still was growing in her relationship with God and serving God at that time, you know what that tells me? Every single person that I'm looking at in here fits in between those, those two numbers. And if you're out there listening and you don't fit between those numbers, it, it, it applies to you too. But every single one of us we still have growing to do, right? We, we still have learning to do. We still have work to do. And we see that in Jesus this week, just like we've seen it in uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like we've seen it in Mary and Joseph, just like we've seen it in Simeon, just like we've seen it in Anna, just like we're going to see it in a lot more people in the rest of the book of Luke. So I want us to finish here. We, there, there's two key implications that we're going to look at as we kind of wrap all this up. See, the, the world would tell us today to treat Jesus as just another great religious figure. That, that Jesus is, man, he was a great teacher. He had some really wonderful things to say, but, 
But really, Luke doesn't give us that option in this passage here. Luke, as a whole, doesn't give us the option to just call Jesus a really good teacher. Jesus, in his words this week, doesn't give us the option to just consider him as a really good teacher. Because when Jesus calls God his Father, what he's saying, this is the first place in in Jesus' life where we see him say, I am God, I am the Messiah. He didn't quite come out and say it that clearly like he's going to in the rest of the book of Luke. But we see him saying, guys, I'm it. I'm different than anyone else. My relationship with God is different than anyone else. He's making the claim, I am God. C.S. Lewis is an author uh, that I've kind of enjoyed reading lately during the, the, the coronavirus shutdown. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my older two kids, and so we've uh, read several of his books recently. And so he uh, is, is popularly known for making a logical argument about the fact that we can't call Jesus just a good teacher. It's popularly known as the Lewis, tri- excuse me, the, the Lewis Trilemma. He says that Jesus simply can't just be a good teacher. He must either be a liar a lunatic, or or he must be Lord. He must actually be God like he says that he was. So I want to read for you guys a quote from the book Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis wrote. It's a little bit long, but I think it makes just really clearly uh, just a, a wonderful point about the fact that we can't just accept Jesus as a good teacher. He says in Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. That is not left, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. See, what he's saying in, in, these, in this argument, what he's saying in this is that Jesus, when he kept saying over and over and over again, I am God, I am the one that God sent, that, that salvation is coming, that I have come to save you, that, that no one can come to God except through me, we can't just call him a good teacher because either he really was who he said he was or he believed that he was God, but he was crazy. There, there have been a few people that, that have said crazier things than that, right? That, that they say something, they truly believe that it's true. They're just wrong, and they're a crazy person. Or he knew that he wasn't God, but he kept saying it. He was, he was trying to deceive people. He was trying to get people to follow him. And even though he knew that he wasn't God, he convinced a whole bunch of other people that he was. Well, that, that would make him a liar, right? And that doesn't make him a good teacher. That doesn't make him someone that we can trust and, and listen to his words. So this argument here, it's a, it's a logical argument. He's got to be one of these three. When Jesus said, I had to be in my father's house, when he made that subtle claim that he's going to make a lot clearer for us in the coming weeks and months, he's saying, I am God. You cannot 
just push me aside as a good teacher. There's one final other application that I want us to make and and notice from Jesus' stop at the temple. See, sometimes we think that adolescents are beyond useful spiritual reflection, that they've kind of, they enter into some weird twilight zone space when they turn 12, and uh, hopefully they come out of it, fingers crossed, by the time they're an adult. We just go, oh, those crazy teenagers. See, what I see here is sometimes I think maybe we look at this story and we treat Jesus as an exception. Oh, well, Jesus was God, so obviously he was able to do it, but now my 12-year-old can't, can't reflect on stuff like that. My 12-year-old can't, can't understand God, can't have a relationship with God, but if Jesus was fully human, like we've acknowledged several different times, Jesus took on humanity to show us how to live, to show us what it looks like to walk with God. Hebrews 2 says that he was made like us in every way. So here what we see is a human 12-year-old boy who was seeking God for himself, who was understanding the things of God for himself. Sometimes I think we underestimate our children. We underestimate our students, our teenagers. Uh, we understand, uh, underestimate what we think they're capable of. See, I, uh, there's, a, there's a popular saying in the church world that I think it's well-intentioned, but I also think it's a terrible, terrible lie that many of us have believed. See, I, I hear people often well-intentioned say that our children are the future of the church, that, that our, our kids are the church of the future, so we need to take care of them. We need to make sure that they keep coming because in 30 years or 50 years, when I'm gone, they're going to be the ones that are running things. And we kind of look at the children as the future of the church. Our children aren't the future of the church. Our children are the church. Our students aren't the future of the church. They're the church now. I, j- a couple of examples for you guys. I have an eight-year-old at home that over the last couple of years, as he's become old enough to, to start working on this, he's memorized probably something like 50 to 100 Bible verses. That's, that's dad's estimation, but somewhere in that range. I haven't memorized 50 to 100 Bible verses in the last couple of years, but my son has. He's eight. What's my problem? What's, what's our problem? I suspect many of us would probably be outnumbered, outmatched by what Peyton has done. Our kids are capable of, of learning incredible things about God. They, they understand a lot more than I think we give them credit for sometimes. Students, kids, everybody listening, our kids are, are capable of understanding and knowing God in really important ways. Our 180 students, the same thing. Before everything kind of shut down, you know how many of our 180 students were serving around the building? We have 180 students on our worship team that lead us every week. We had one up here just a few minutes ago. We have 180 students that help in the kitchen to help with breakfast when we serve breakfast. We have 180 students that serve in our classrooms with our kids. Some of them even teach the lesson. They, they don't have a grown-up in there that they're just helping pass out cookies. Like, they're, they're doing it. We got one of them up here sitting. Our 180 students, they... They, they are part of the church. If we didn't have our children, if we didn't have our students as a part of the Rock Community Church, the Rock Community Church would look a lot different. We wouldn't be the Rock Community Church. We would be part of it. Our students, got, God's not too big for you. You don't have to wait until you, you grow up and become a big person to, to do incredible things for God, to understand God, to have a relationship with God. Kids, 
Keep learning. Keep studying. Keep understanding. Our One other thing, I want to brag on our children's ministry for just a second and we're done. Our children's ministry over the past few weeks has been doing a summer family challenge. And so last week their challenge was for our families to put together little goodie boxes. And so they, some of them made, you know, little, little boxes with treats in them or, or uh, our family, we just went and bought prepackaged stuff because we didn't want people thinking we'd been putting our dirty fingers all over their cookies. Um, and, and they were supposed to tie a little invitation, invite your neighbors and, and invite them to come to church and to hear about God. My kids were so excited about this, and, and I know several other families in our church were so excited about this because, well, I like going to church and learning about God. My, our neighbors should too. They, they should too. And so we would go and we would set the, the invitation and the little treat down on the door, and uh, most of our kids just wanted to ding-dong ditch, and so they'd set the invitation and the treats and ring the doorbell and run away. And so I, I think inviting people to come and hear the good news of the gospel is like the one time that it's okay to ding-dong ditch people. But our, our kids, they, they had fun with it, and they were out there making a difference. They were, they were hopefully changing Anaheim Hills, changing your Belinda, changing our area for the gospel because they were out there doing it. Faith is not something that's, that's too big for young people. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, sat in the temple and, and was having spiritual conversations with the church leaders. Let's not call our children the church of the future. Let's just call them what they are. They are the church. They are a part of everything that happens here. They, they may have a different understanding level than you do or than I do. That's okay. We have different understanding levels, right? Some of you guys, I, I, I wish I just had hours to sit and ask you questions because you have, have been able to, to walk in situations and experiences and learn things about God that, that I still haven't yet. That's awesome. We have different understanding levels, but that doesn't make me less significant or, or less important to God. And it doesn't make you less significant or important to God. And teenagers, kids, that doesn't make you less important to God either. You can do incredible things for God too. If Jesus could sit with the rabbis, maybe our kids can too. Let's not forget that. All right, would you guys pray with me as we finish up? God, thank you for... God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you and to look at this one passage that we have of Jesus as an adolescent. God, we pray that you would, um, God, that you would speak to us. God, help us to understand some of these big, confusing ideas like the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time and, and how that all fits together. But God, also, also importantly, God, help us to understand the really simple things that are just God, maybe they're difficult to apply. God, help us to, to look to our kids, to look to our students as, uh, God, as, as important parts of the church. God, help us to, to, to look to uh, situations where, God, where we can make a difference and, and God, that, that we can learn in the same way that Jesus sat and learned at those teachers' feet. God, we pray that you would uh, continue to speak to us. God, continue to, to work and mold and, and, and change us and use us to be the people that you want us to be. And God, we pray that you would move in our lives and that you would speak, God, that this would not just be something that we hear and flies out the other ear as we're walking out of the building. God, make a difference in our lives this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.